and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we'll probably be into the Easter weekend by the time most of you listen to this, so I hope you're perhaps getting some time off work and maybe even tucking into some chocolate in the spring sunshine. Our interview this week is with Janelle Price. She looks forward to Kentucky and Badminton this year and talks about her win at the Big B in 2018. I remember looking back to the board just to check I hadn't, you know, it was real. Yeah, that moment is something you'll, you'll never ever forget, for sure. We'll be reviewing the World Cup finals and the Grand National. Plus, I'll be talking to our news team about equine ID, insurance for coaches and careers for ex-racehorses. Finally, bits and bitting expert Trisha Nassau-Williams will talk about how you can make sure you buy the right size bit for your horse. It uh, never ceases to amaze me how people seem to get in a complete muddle um, about measuring for their horse's bit, which is perhaps an, an easy and understandable mistake to make if you're new to the subject. So we've got a lot to get through this week. Buckle up your nose band and let's get started. I'm delighted to introduce our guest this week. She's a badminton winner, an Olympic medalist, and currently the number two in the world. It is, of course, Janelle Price. Hi, Janelle. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. And we are revving up to badminton time again. It's less than a month away as we're speaking. And you are heading back there this year with Classic Moe, who you won with four years ago now. And she's 19 years old now. How is she feeling? <laughs> yeah, we try and uh, keep her age a little bit on the on the low, but no, look, she looks um, fantastic. You know, I've never had a, a senior horse like this before, so it is a sort of unprecedented, yeah, you know, times for ourselves. But I think the most important thing is, you know, you just take each day as it comes, and certainly here and now she looks a million dollars, and, you know, I can honestly say she feels no different, you know, than she has for the last few years so I'm excited to have her in uh, contention and on track and uh, we've done the bulk of the work so just looking forward to sort of uh, getting through these last couple of weeks and hopefully we'll be there come trot up. Yeah and she had a great prep run at Thorsby earlier in the month didn't she went and was placed in the advance there. Yeah she's been jumping fantastic Uh, the dressage is obviously her downside but um, she's not really a one-day horse either to be honest you know she needs a little bit of time to settle into the environment she needs quite a lot of work I don't try overly hard at the one days you know we just sort of use those as a a stepping stone to get to the bigger picture so I'm hoping with a bit more work uh, during the week at badminton we can have her a little bit more on side for the all-important dressage yeah and tell us a bit more about your partnership with her she came to you in 2013 she was already a 10 year old so she was a horse that that was established to some extent when you first started to ride her what was she like and what did you think of her look i'm sure her owner trisha ricards you know won't mind me saying but she she wasn't particularly nice to be honest i was sort of um i rode another mare for trisha the little gray fairy dianimo and and then they sort of said do you want molly as well and i jumped at the opportunity but you know upon getting her she sort of felt all over the show she was an you know an unusual looking thing i was sort of a little bit almost embarrassed at the start to be honest i sort of used to hide down the back of the warm-up but she definitely just always had something about her about you know getting the job done Uh, she's incredibly determined and as time went on, she just, um, you know, grew into more horse than I ever, ever thought she could have been. And um, I know that I will look back, you know, when, when she is retired, when the day comes, I will look back and she will certainly be my fondest memories of numerous cross-country rounds, you know, tearing, tearing around the biggest tracks in the world and making really light work of it. So I owe her a huge amount and um, I have so much admiration for her. Yeah, and she really came to prominence, I think, for the first time at the 2014 World Equestrian Games. It was such a tough cross-country day in the Mardin Caen and she was the fastest horse across country, finished fourth individually. What are your memories of that event with her? Yeah, well, it was, um, you know, like you say, it was sort of the the arrival of her on on the scene at top level I remember sort of a year out from that championships and I had another horse called the deputy who I thought would be my front runner 
And as it turned out, he, you know, he became a bit unreliable in the show jumping phase. Meanwhile, Classic Moe was uh, barely into advanced, I think. You know, she sort of went from a three-star to the World Championships, I think, in 18 months. And I'd set this sort of ambitious plan, you know, just as a little bit of a, a wild dream almost that she could be a backup, you know, if something went wrong. And then, uh, you know, as it transpired, she stayed well on that track and answered every question at every step. And before you know it, we were named as an individual. You know, she hadn't quite done enough for the team. We were named as an individual. And, you know, like you said, it was a very wet uh, World Championships. We'd had a lot of rain leading in. And the ground just really took it out of them on the cross country. And I was quite late to go on the day. And it hadn't been a good day for the Kiwis. Um, we'd had, a, I think, Toddy had fallen off and Tim hadn't come home. So the team team's hopes were dashed. And I remember setting off here quite late in the day and sort of Toddy said to me, well, you know, go and have a cut. Uh, you know, it's a day for the taking and see what you can do. And, and maybe naively I sort of, you know, set off out of the start box ambitiously and, and she just coped incredibly well with the ground, uh, jumped her heart out. And um, I think she was probably one of very, very few to pull her way. There was sort of a, a little slope right at the finish flags and most were sort of crawling to those finish flags and she tore up the hill and I remember it was quite a short way until the road and I just remember Tim being there sort of you know waving his arms in front of her telling you know stop stop Molly the road's coming <laughs> and um, she was just ears pricked and uh, full of running. Yeah, I remember standing at the top of that hill, actually, because our uh, mix zone where we spoke to the riders was in a little tent at the top of the hill. And uh, yeah, it was it was a decent pull up there because I, I had to run up it a few times between the dressage and the mix zone. So <laughs> yeah, good for her. And then four years later, she won badminton. An incredible, incredible week. She was 22nd after dressage, and we know that's not her strong point. Again, it was a, a wet cross-country day. Did you ever think that from that place you could move all the way up and, and, and actually win the competition? Well, no, I didn't, but it's not really something, you know, I think about. And particularly now, how, how close the dressage is. I know 20 seconds sounds pretty terrible, but... I mean, I think that was her PB, to be honest. And it's not so much the number of the placing where you are as how far you are off the leader, you know, yeah. as how many points you are off the leader. You know, nowadays we could have 10 people within one mark, you know, one mark from the start of a an event like Babington to the finish is just nothing. Um, so, you know, the, the field is going to split. So when you're on a horse like her, you know, I don't get too demoralised by, by the position post-research. I just try and uh, hope to think that I'm within touch of the leader. That's more what I base it off. Um, but obviously, you know, the cross-country was the opportunity, and I think that particular day nobody had gone inside the time. Um, and it was my first sort of big one back. I'd had the year off, both she and I had had the year off uh, prior to that when I had um, our son Otis. So I remember sort of being a little bit, um, not nervous, but, you know, we hadn't run much. I was worried, you know, whether I was quite tip-top shape again. And um, I sort of overrode the lake early on and, and made a bit of a mistake on the way in and had to take the option coming out. And then I just remember thinking, you know, you've really got your work cut out for you now. And, and we did, um, you know, and it would be one of the few times I've put a bit of pressure on her and, you know, said we're really going to have to get moving now. And I just remember we were just slightly, you know, I stayed on the minutes and then I think about the last sort of four minutes I said, right, you know, we've got to start clawing this back now. And she, you know, she was phenomenal and just responded at, at every turn. And I think we sort of came within one or two seconds. So it was uh, quite some feat at the time. Yeah, one second day of the time and the fastest fastest of the day. No one no one got the time. And then it all came together on the final day to take that top spot. Can you remember what it felt like to to win on that day and, and what did it mean to you afterwards? What has it meant for you in your career? Well, I mean the whole thing was um well it really was a fairy tale. I remember we had some uh, staff that had come up for the party on the Saturday night and I remember the phone ringing at um, 
must have been 3 a.m. and it was a security guard or, or something. And he'd, one of our staff had had a little bit too much to drink and had been found in a portaloo. And Tim uh, ended up getting up and going over to pick them up and brought them back. And of course, we had to get them changed and into bed. And I just remember just thinking all night, this is not how you know, the fairy tale ends. <laughs> I was like, I'm convinced that's not how it goes. But you know, I guess part of your job as an athlete is just to constantly try and block those exterior factors out of the equation. And, um, you know, it really was a, a fairy tale. You know, the mayor hasn't got a, a fantastic show jump record. You know, she can easily have one down. And I think I probably touched nearly every fence in that round. I just remember the crowd the whole way around going, <gasps> you know, making that noise as, as, you know, we rubbed fence after fence. But it was her day. It really was. And um, I think she was a, a fitting winner. I still remember, you know, knowing I had a rail in hand and I jumped through the treble, so I only had one left to jump. But you still don't believe it till you cross that finish line. And I remember looking back to the board just to check I hadn't, you know, it was real. Yeah, that moment is something you'll, you'll never, ever forget, for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you had your son, Otis, just eight months before that. You have a daughter now as well, Abel, who was born in February 2020. How is life with two kids? I imagine it's pretty crazy juggling everything. Oh, look, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. We're very, very lucky to be able to, um, you know, do a sport we love, combine it with a business and our careers. And, um, you know, now to be able to have two children that can come along on the journey with us, you know, they travel quite a lot with us as much as we can. Sure, it's busy. Um, you know, I just think you have to probably get up a, an hour or two earlier in the day and be that bit more organised. But, you know, we're lucky to have a good team around us that uh, enable us to keep going at full speed. Yeah. And the week before badminton this year, you head over to Kentucky. You're going to be riding McLaren there. He is the horse that you took over from Mark Todd. Tell us a bit about him. What's he like? He's like a little Jack Russell. He's uh, pint-sized. You know, he's probably... 15-2 at a guess. Um, you know, he's got real sort of wheat man syndrome, I guess. Uh, he's like a little, yeah, terrier. He's a cheeky little number. Um, but he's hugely talented. You know, he moves, he, he jumps. He's a, a serious uh, show jumper, you know, contrary to dear old Molly. Um, you know, you go into the ring on him and you feel a million dollars. So... I was very lucky to get the ride. Um, the owners, David and Kerry Thompson, you know, very kindly wanted him to stay within the New Zealand team. For me, it was a real um, coup to take on the horse from Toddy, and obviously him and I were great mates, and you know, and have ridden on many a team together. So I'd often watched and admired the horse. I mean, he actually tried to sell him to me uh, right at the very start. It's a funny story, and he pulled out. Uh, I agreed to buy the horse sight unseen. I was down in Spain jumping at the time when he rang me. And uh, just as we were due to get him vetted, he pulled out on me and said, no, I'm keeping him for myself. So I sort of always felt it was, um, you know, sort of meant to be that he came back to me in the end. But uh, it's, it's been a great story. And, um, you know, he's he's worked his way up to the very highest level and had his five-star debut, albeit, you know, a little bit older, at 14 years old. And... Uh, October last year but went very very well and we're hoping to back up with another good performance in Kentucky. Yeah well I think he's more the right size for you at 15 too than, than he ever was for Toddy so. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is hard to imagine I mean I used to ride alongside him and, and Toddy has that remarkable ability of, of riding a small horse but I mean the horse is tiny I feel big on him so how on earth Toddy ever rode him I have no idea but um, such is the legend of the man. <laughs> and you rode three horses at Kentucky last year had some great results third with Gravine de Rev seventh the classic Moe I would imagine a lot of our British listeners have never been to Kentucky and it is an event that's very different to our sort of British five stars give us a bit of the flavor what is it like there uh, it's uh, like uh, horse paradise um, you know the first thing I think you notice when you're flying into Lexington is the miles and miles of beautiful post and rail, you know, a lot of white post and rail. The place looks pristine, you know, it's sort of what you imagine the American horsey dream to be like. So um, that's always a really a welcoming sight. Um, the barns are 
again, what you sort of see in storybooks and things, you know, beautiful, pristine barns. And, you know, the horse park is, is a facility that is, you know, is, is truly world-class. You, you don't find anywhere better. Um, the terrain is, is beautiful. It's manicured. The American public are very uh, enthusiastic, very supportive. Um, so it always is it's a real privilege to go there and compete. And, um, yeah, I feel very lucky to be heading back there again. Yeah, it should be an exciting couple of weeks. And just talk us through the logistics with those two events back to back. When does when does McLaren go to Kentucky and when do you go to Kentucky? So he flies on Wednesday the 20th and uh, I stay behind for a few days and we'll run some horses at Bicton on the Friday and Saturday and then I will fly out the Sunday morning. Obviously the horses have to do a quarantine so uh, our groom will meet him at the quarantine facility in Louisville and spend uh, two days with him there and then they truck down to Kentucky on arriving on the Saturday afternoon and then I'll be there sort of Sunday midday in time to give him a little bit of light work on, on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And who has the responsibility for uh, riding Classic Mary and keeping her in tip-top shape while you're in America? Uh, she'll actually just... Um, nobody will, will be doing too much on her. She'll... Um, just you know the work is done by that stage some horses we would um it really is an individual thing from horse to horse but her she, she's a bit smaller i know her so well she's sort of not your normal mold so she will just sort of uh tick over for that week and and do the fitness side of things but she won't be schooling or jumping or anything yeah she'll have a nice easy week ahead of badminton and then coming home presumably you fly out of kentucky on that sunday night flight yeah, it's always a bit of a, uh, a rush from the, well, hopefully from the show jumping slash prize giving if, if, if it all went to plan. And and then you, you dash to the airport. I think the flight's normally sort of around 6.30, 7pm and uh, land back at Heathrow sort of 10 a.m. Monday morning and then straight into, I'm doing some training, jump training on Monday um, in Gloucester. So it'll be a, a dash from Heathrow direct to training, make sure, um, yeah, Molly feels good and then come home and do some washing and packing and spend some time with the kids before turning around to uh, badminton the tuesday yeah it was i think pretty much everyone who has to leave kentucky and get to badminton is on that sunday night flight and i think the flight was even a little earlier this year than before and um, i'm coming out to kentucky as well and i was like well everyone has to be on that flight it will wait we will be there <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. no look the organizers are always very understanding and yeah, hopefully we can get through the jumping and, and tickle those boxes and, and get to the plane. Yeah. And your kids are not coming to Kentucky with you? They're staying in England? No, we sort of do it on a case-by-case -case basis. But obviously, uh, Tim isn't coming to Kentucky this year. Last year, uh, we both went, but we had five horses between us, which was a lot at a five-star. So we didn't take them last year. And uh, no, we're not taking them again this year. But I'm sure they'll be uh, up at badminton for for as much as they can of the week. Yeah, brilliant. Well, Janelle, looking forward to seeing both those horses at Kentucky and Badminton. And thank you so much for squeezing us in and giving us a, a bit of an insight into, into your life and those two great horses as we go into these spring five stars. And best of luck with it all. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. So I'm joined now by my colleague, Polly Bryan. Polly was at the FEI World Cup finals in Leipzig last week, which is very exciting. We haven't had a World Cup final for a couple of years, but the World Cup finals are back. It's always a brilliant competition. How was it, Polly? Oh, it was so much fun, Pippa. It was great to be back at a World Cup final. The last one was in 2019, so actually three years ago. And I was lucky enough to be at that one. Did not realise that would be the last one for a few years. But yeah, I had a really lovely time. It was great to be back um, witnessing really, really high level competition. I reported on the dressage and the show jumping. And yeah, it was fantastic. Well, let's start with the dressage. Tell us who won, what, what was the big, uh, the big story? Well, the big story was that Germany's Jessica von Breda-Werndl just blew everybody away with another outstanding test on her Olympic and European champion, Mare Delera. Uh, she scored over 90% again. I think it was the sixth time that that combination have scored over 90%, which is just phenomenal. 
And Jessica actually said that the the test was the best one they'd ever done, her freestyle. It wasn't quite as high scoring as her Olympic winning test. Uh, there was It was about a percent lower, but she said it was better. She said that she felt Delera went her best ever. She was almost in shock considering how much she has won now. She was quite in shock to, to have the World Cup title as well. Oh, bless her. Brilliant. And that was Jessica's last competition for a while. Is that right? Yes, it was. Jessica is actually five months pregnant um, and she is taking a baby break over the summer to have her baby. It's her second child. She already has a little boy um, and her, her baby will be due in August. So she will miss the World Championships in Denmark this summer. So the World Cup was, was I mean, it's always a huge deal, of course, but I think perhaps because she knew it was her only shot at a, at, a, at a big title this year it meant a lot to her to come and to really do her best and you know she she rode absolutely beautifully she she made a joke actually in the uh, press conference when someone commented on the fact that her score was not quite as high as the one in Tokyo I mean we're talking 90.8 compared to 91.7 I mean it's insanely huge scores and uh, Jessica joked that perhaps it didn't look quite as good as it felt because she is a bit rounder than she was in Tokyo being pregnant but no they just looked on absolutely flying form and she was actually very um, sad this was her last big competition her last one with Delera for, for a little while. And talking of those huge scores we must be getting pretty close to Villegro's world records aren't we? Are we going to see those broken? We're definitely in that realm. Um, the world record, the highest dressage score ever recorded um, internationally was Vallegro's freestyle at Olympia in 2014. He scored 94.3%. We are not quite there. The highest that Jessica has ever scored is 91.7. So she is a, a couple of percent off. Um, but a lot of people were talking about whether we will see that score broken. A lot of people are comparing Zalera to Vallegro, which is very interesting because they're very different horses. They're very, very different in, in type and the way they go. They're both obviously completely wonderful. In all the years since Vallegro, this is probably the combination I think are most likely to break his record. You know, they're obviously having a break over the summer, but we'll see what happens after that. I, I definitely think it's possible. Wow. Well, that will be exciting. And we did have a British representative in the dressage in Leipzig as well. We did. We had Lottie Fry, who was out there on Dark Legend. Dark Legend is the horse that she um, became under 25 European champion on in 2018. She went to the European Championships on the senior team the following year with Darkey. Um, they're just a wonderful combination. They've been together for a long, long time. She's been riding him since he was young. Um, they they had a, a really good, really good test in the short Grand Prix the first test out in Leipzig they just had one one mistake where Lottie made a bit of a counting error in her changes she said she was really kicking herself afterwards unfortunately their freestyle didn't quite go to plan Darky used to be quite hot and spooky in in arenas in, in sort of indoor very close arenas he's got so much better over the years but he reverted a bit back to his old ways when he found something absolutely terrifying in one corner of the arena Lottie rode superbly she basically couldn't use an entire corner of the arena for her whole test and she had to rethink her floor plan on the spot they actually produced some really amazing moments but he was he was very tense he was very spooky and they uh, their score left them you know down down at the bottom of the leaderboard which was very sad because they really could have been up there in the top five or six for sure Mm. Oh, what a pity. And finally, before we move on to the show jumping, the other big story of the weekend, I think, was around a horse retiring. It was, yes. Anyone who has followed dressage over the last, well, sort of eight years or so at the top level will know of Isabel Vett's beautiful black mare, Viagold. She has won, I mean, Isabel said she's won almost everything there is to win. And it is so true. She won team gold for Germany at Rio 2016. She was triple, uh, triple gold medalist at the European Championships in 2017. And uh, most relevant to this particular event, she was the defending World Cup champion she won it back to back three times um via golden isabel which is just absolutely phenomenal she's 17 now everyone knew that a retirement was coming was on the cards 
Isabel said that they had been really debating a lot over the winter where to do this because it's, it was very important to Isabel to retire this horse in front of a crowd in a good atmosphere at a high level. And she said she felt very strongly about wanting to retire her where she could still go out and do a few more shows and perform really well um, rather than waiting too long. Um, and retiring her when she was not at her best. And I think Leipzig was absolutely the perfect place to do it. There was obviously an adoring home crowd. The atmosphere was incredible. And Weigold had her own retirement ceremony, which followed the prize giving in the World Cup. She was third in the World Cup. Um, she finished on the podium, which was fantastic. And Isabel was visibly very emotional. She's so proud of that horse. And yeah, Vai will go on to um, to do some breeding. She's already bred several amazing horses via embryo transfer. Um, and it looks as though she will now go on to be a full-time mummy. Oh, well, that's lovely that she'll have a job and hopefully we'll see some little Vais in the future. So onto the show jumping. I do love show jumping World Cup. It's such an exciting format and it was a really close finish this time, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, it was so close. Yeah, it was really exciting. I uh, <laughs> I imagine there were probably a few people laughing at me as the uh, last few riders were in the ring. So I was sort of jumping up and down and um, getting very excited watching on the big screen from out in the collecting ring. One of my favourite things is watching the reaction of the riders when they watch other people jump, um, the people who obviously they're around sort of affect the score. And I was watching Martin Fuchs, who was the eventual winner, when he was watching McLean Ward jump his final round and McLean had to go clear to win sadly he didn't he had two down but watching Martin's reaction was just incredible he was he almost fell off his horse with just sheer emotion um, when he watched McLean's pole sort of roll out of its cup and it was just a really really exciting close finish um, Martin Fuchs was the eventual winner uh, with Harry Smolders from the Netherlands in a very close second and one of the interesting aspects of this World Cup final was that it was won by a rider who used two different horses across the three legs, which hasn't happened for a long time, has it? Yes, that's right. It was really, really interesting. Three riders across the, the starting field opted to use two horses across the three legs that make up the World Cup final. Um, and of those three, two of them finished in the top four, one being Martin Fuchs and the other being Britain's Harry Charles, who finished fourth. And I'm sure we'll talk about him in a minute. Only one rider up until now has ever won the World Cup final with two horses. Um, and that was Marcus Enning in 2010. And um, obviously it's a strategy that not everybody can deploy. Um, not everybody has two horses at that level uh, that they can they can bring to a World Cup final. And of course, there's pros and cons to it. But Martin, you know, definitely said it was very rewarding for his plan to pay off. Um, he rode Chaplin in the first round, which he actually won. He came out on top of the opening leg. And then he swapped onto the Sinner for the second round. The Sinner slightly lived up to his name and had a pole down, which Martin was very disappointed about. Uh, but he was back on Chaplin for the final round. And because, of course, the points are accumulate across the week he was actually still right up there near the top of the leaderboard and um and able to come through and win it in the end great and you mentioned harry charles there how did the brits get on Oh, it was a brilliant week for the British riders. Absolutely brilliant. It was it was slightly heartbreaking, um, I have to say. Harry Charles finished fourth, and that is such a tough place to finish. The World Cup is it's a real championship in that, you know, they the the three top riders stand on the podium at the end, and to be one place off that podium is really really hard but Harry just did amazingly he brought two horses as well he rode Romeo 88 who was his Tokyo Olympics horse and he also brought Stardust who he jumped in the opening speed round um, she's a zippy little mare and he he was also very very pleased with his strategy to ride too he was on absolutely top form but just a really unfortunate pole in the last round uh, left him down in fourth. If it wasn't for that pole, he would have then jumped off with Martin Fuchs for the first place. It, it was tough for Harry to take, but he'll be back and he knows he'll be back. So yeah, very exciting. And the other really exciting young British rider out there was Jack Whitaker, who finished fifth. Absolutely amazing to have two Brits in the top five. Jack did not hit a pole all week with his World Cup ride, um, Valmy Dillerland. And they were just on flying form. Really, really exciting for the future. 
Oh, great. And John Whitaker was out there keeping up the end of the older generation and finished 12th, <laughs> didn't he? He was. Yes, that's right. He was out there as well, actually at his first World Cup final since 2000. Um, he, <laughs> he he didn't think it had been quite that long when I checked that that was correct. Um, but that is certainly what his FEI record says. And he, he told me to trust that over his own memory. So we'll oh, go with him. that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Polly, I think some listeners might remember our sort of Life in Tokyo segments back last summer when I think we were recording it at two in the morning and quite delirious. But give us a quick <laughs> flavour of life in Leipzig. Did you eat anything interesting? Did you see anything interesting? Did anything wild happen? Oh God, you're putting me on the spot now. <laughs> uh, did you eat some breakfast? I, I did. I did eat some breakfast. I actually, it, the way that the schedule worked out meant that I could take a couple of hours on Saturday morning and actually go out into the city and have a little look around, which was really interesting. Um, I'm a bit of a history geek, so I very much enjoyed soaking up a little bit of the, the sort of history and the culture. And I also did make sure I ate a really amazing breakfast out in Germany which was definitely a highlight. Uh, another highlight, I think, for a lot of people out there, food-wise, was the very large Haribo stand, Haribo sort of pick-and-mix stand, um, right by the press seats. And <laughs> I think I saw almost everybody clutching a little red and white uh, pick-and-mix bag at some point over the over the week. I succumbed to it on the Saturday night for the late-night finish for the dressage final. Um, and, yeah, I was definitely on a bit of a sugar high. <laughs> Oh, God, I haven't had pick and mix since before COVID. I'm looking forward to it already. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Polly. It's been great to look back at those, uh, those World Cup finals with you. Really good to hear about them. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, and I'm here with my colleague Gemma Redrop to look back at Saturday's epic Grand National for this week's news review. The winner of this year's race was amateur jockey Sam Whaley-Cohen, riding the seven-year-old Noble Yates for Irish trainer Emmett Mullins, who was saddling his first ever runner in the race. You'd have to say the stats were stacked up against them and they went off an unfancied 50-to-1 shot. But Gemma, what a fairy tale finish the Grand National produced once again, didn't it? It was amazing, Jen, um, and it made so even even more amazing because it was Sam's last ever ride. He, he announced earlier in the week that... Um, he was going to retire after that ride in the Grand National and he won it. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, ama it was amazing. You couldn't make it up. I mean, if that if I'd announced my retirement, I would go into that race thinking, oh, you know, just I'd like to get round, you know, yeah. nice little ride. And then, I mean, it all sort of panned out perfectly for him. You saw him, you know, early in the race, he was kind of out the back, minding his own business, yeah. crept into it really, you know, carefully and slowly. And um, I mean, it was that great finish as well. He was, uh, <laughs> it was just such a great race for him and the, emotion of it all as well I just can't even imagine it was yeah I, I mean I was screaming at the TV <laughs> when I realized that he could be about to go and win it I was like I was then really rooting for him because of, of, of the retirement thing obviously but mm -hmm. also you know his family have been so supportive of, of him and the racing industry during his career his, exactly. his for his father and um, his dad has a lot of horses and training that Sam rides and um and yeah, it was just, it was amazing to watch and I feel very lucky that we could watch it. Definitely. And all credit to Sam, you know, he's a proper amateur rider. He works full time, he runs his own business and, and racing for him is, you know, it's a hobby. It's something he does for fun. Yet he's won the Grand National, Gold Cup, two King Georges. And, you know, these are the races that pro jockeys dream of winning. And he's, yeah. he's done it all. He's a fantastic rider, isn't he? Yeah, he, he, is, he is an amazing rider and jockey. And in particular, he's got, I think he's the he's the jockey with the best record over the national fences in terms of, you know, not just riding in the Grand National, but obviously the other races that happen over the Grand National fences through the year as well. And yeah, he is just uh, he, he's just a hell of a horseman. It's amazing. And he gave us some great insight, actually. He said, you know, he's he's been in the Grand National several times. He's been placed quite a few times as well. You know, as you say, it's he's great over that track. But he went back and he watched the replays and watched his own races and he learned how to ride that elbow. The elbow is the final bit of the of the course when they come towards the finishing line. They sort of have to jink right a bit, which catches a lot of people out. But he learned exactly how to get his tactics right for this year. And you saw it play out. He got the advantage. He had um, any second now up alongside him, but yeah. they battled it out properly 
and that you know that takes some sort of skill and judgment to do that doesn't it for sure and especially at the end of a four mile two and a half mile long race <laughs> to time it uh, yeah. like that is is amazing yeah I think I would just be on my knees. I wouldn't be thinking oh, yeah. about where I was supposed to be going, anything. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, and the last amateur rider to win the race was back in, I mean, it was 32 years ago, our very own Marcus Armitage. And uh, I mean, it was great. I saw um, Marcus went over. He was one of the first people to go and congratulate Sam. It's, um, I mean, for amateur riders to do that, it's, it's brilliant. And uh, yeah, the two of them, I think they've got a very special bond that they can, I'm sure there's, there'll be some pints down the pub reliving uh, yeah. their, their memories <laughs> together. Um, and we had 15 finishes in the race this year. Can you just take mm -hmm. us through the top four, Gemma? Yeah, sure. So any second now who, he was actually third last year and he was very unlucky on his way around last year. He got hampered a bit. Else oh, yeah. He possibly could have won it last year. Mm -hmm. So then to be second this year, he's ridden by um, Mark Walsh and he's trained, trained by Ted Walsh, who's Ruby Walsh's father. Um, and yeah, he was just beaten in second by two and a quarter oh, lengths. Your heart yeah. has got to break for them. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing. I mean, it's a great achievement to get round twice, but to finish so close as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And especially he was carrying 11 stone eight and, oh, wow. and Noble Yates, the, the winner was 10, carrying 10 stone 10. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, so, and then third was Delta Work with um, Jack Kennedy on him for Gordon Elliott. Um, You'd actually done a very similar route to Tiger Roll and come through yes. the, the cross country race at Cheltenham. So that's obviously a good tactic that that stable is uh, going along with. I like that. Yeah, but the, the, the front two were quite a long way ahead of him. They was 20 odd lengths um, in front of him. And then fourth was Santini, who um, there's been a, a lot in the press about Santini because he, he used to be trained by Nicky Hansen, is now trained by Polly Gundry, who's former multiple ladies point to point champion jockey. And mm. um, she's only, I think she's only got 10 horses in training. And anyway, the, the owners moved the horse, moved Santini to, to Polly. And she's been out on fun rides with, <laughs> with him and taken him for a bit of hunting and just like, he needs to be kept quite busy, I think, to get him fit enough and he doesn't yeah. have the best feet in the world. So for him, he was a close fourth as well with Nick Schofield on top. And it mm. was just, it, that, I thought that was a really nice a nice story a nice, a nice outcome yeah it, it just shows that any you know any horse any jockey you know there's there's hope for i was going to say there's hope for us all but there's, yeah there's, <laughs> there's not hope for me but <laughs> not some people <laughs> yeah no it's it's a lovely story um and then further down the field i know a lot of people would have had a tiny little tip on snow leopardess she was the mm. sort of the story of the race wasn't she and um yeah. you could see sort of early on she wasn't enjoying the ground she likes the mud doesn't she and i yeah. think um aiden coleman said she you know he he pulled her up after a circuit because she just wasn't enjoying it and yeah wasn't her day and then yeah i guess manella times was another one that we were all be cheering for last year's winner with rachel blackmore and just goes to show you know they had such a great route round it was the fairy tale last year and then this year yeah. galloping around minding their own business and then the horse in front of them falls and they you know they get yeah. taken down it just goes to show what a race it is and anything could happen it's um yeah there's obviously a lot of skill and tactics involved but also a lot of luck yeah definitely <laughs> yeah and then Gemma we were treated to another great race actually on Thursday again mm. over the Grand National Fences in the Fox Hunters which was won by Gina Andrews and um, I was standing there at the finish that day and the disbelief and emotion that Gina had coming over the finish it was just it just shows what it meant to win a race like that but uh, it was a victory for the whole family actually wasn't it yeah so um, Gina was riding a horse called Late Night Pass who's trained by her her husband Tom Ellis and was bred by her um, her mother-in-law so um, yeah so it, it was a real um, family affair and actually her, um, Gina's father Simon he won the race 33 year, years ago as well so, wow it's amazing yeah, yeah so um, but she looked like she had a dream ride around there and he's a he, late night pass is a brilliant jumper so definitely 
and it's yeah long overdue for Gina because she's obviously a hugely 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 successful point to point yeah yeah and uh, the Fox Hunters is the race for the amateurs isn't it it's Mm, a real um pinnacle of any any rider's career so that was amazing um and then talking of families on Friday we had the Mm -hmm. Topham which is essentially a sort of shortened version of the Grand National but for the pro riders um and one of my favorite moments was uh, the winner was Sean Bowen riding his uh father's Mac Totty, the brilliantly named Mac Totty. Um, And as they were coming down to the finish, you could see there was this jockey just pegging it along on foot. (laughs) I was like, what is that jockey doing? What's going on? And it turned out it was James Bowen, who is Sean's brother, and he'd fallen off earlier in the in the race. And he was running so fast to go and congratulate (laughs) his brother for winning the race. It was just amazing. And there was like hugs all around. The whole family (laughs) were there. It was so good. It's another of these great entry stories, isn't it? Yeah, it really was. I don't think I've ever seen a jockey so happy to fall no. <laughs> after having fallen off. Um, so, um, yeah, which it was brilliant. And, and I'm, Sean said after the race, you know, how obviously any win is lovely, but how much mm-hmm. it meant to him doing meant to him for doing it for his family so yeah exactly oh my goodness I mean ancient it's all about these fairy tales and we had yeah. them in bucket loads this year didn't we <laughs> we did there's loads well Gemma Sally that's it the Grand National Festival is over again for another year let's hope we have more of these great stories again next year thank you and goodbye thanks very much Jen cheers So I'm joined today by all three members of our news team at Horse and Hound, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? I'm all good, thank you. The sun's out and um, I have been sent, as I think you have too, some shampoo to to review for the Horse and Hound website. And anyone who knows me and how often I bath my horses will find that quite ironic. (laughs) Yeah, so... I have been saying ever since we started doing this like tried and tested thing, I have been saying all I really want is shampoo because you get through so much shampoo if you have a grey horse. So it was like all my Christmases had come at once when Georgia, who looks after our reviews, emailed last week and was like, do you want to test some shampoos? And I replied in capital letters, yes, yes, yes. And she said, oh, I'm going to split them between you and Eleanor and Alex, our showing editor. And I replied and said, Eleanor doesn't brush or wash her horses. I like that line about how much shampoo you get through if you've got a grey because I have got a grey and uh, I, I don't get through much. <laughs> Georgia came back and assured me that you had promised you were going to wash your horses. I actually, I'll get a great before and after picture of her tail, so at least it will be worth that. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to hearing more. <laughs> we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I had I had a couple of days off last week, which was just really nice. I'd had quite a busy weekend the weekend before covering Thorsby, which I have I think I've talked to everyone about everyone who 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 I can find um, because it, I, it was brilliant. So that was great. And then this weekend, I've been of course watching watching the Grand National, which was talk about fairy tales for um, for Sam Whaley Cohen. That was uh, that was really wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I I think we missed out on hearing about Thorsby on the podcast because, uh, as you say, you were off on the day that we were recording last week, but it does sound like it was a great event. Yes, it really was. It had a real... It felt really established. I kept having to check that it was the first time it had run in its own spot it held um it stood in for Osbiton uh during one of the pandemic years uh but it was it was fabulous the atmosphere was wonderful I really liked how the course design looped almost around the trade stand so it gave a real atmosphere there and uh everyone I spoke to uh, had a lovely time riding as well so that's obviously the most important part is is the sport part but really really lovely for spectators and uh which is equally important too for our sport I think so yes all great good to hear that and we also have with us our senior news writer Becky Murray up in Scotland how are you Becky I'm well thank you um funny you should mention testing products actually I'm due to be testing some fly rugs but I actually had to dig out my winter rugs last week when the snow returned so um yeah still waiting to get spring in northeast Scotland that is outrageous at this time of year (laughs) Eleanor is never coming to visit you Becky no (laughs) or only in July Well, thank you, everybody. We had better move on to the serious news. We've got so much happening this week and so much to cover. Eleanor, you have been writing about Equine ID. What is happening there? Yeah, so this is a sort of uh, long-awaited consultation. Uh, DEFRA is carrying out a public consultation on 
proposals to improve the equine ID and traceability system. Um, we reported, and actually Lucy wrote it last autumn, that a uh, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee had made a report that basically said our equine ID system was rubbish, although in MP language. <laughs> and um, DEFRA said at the time they were going to consult on making the system hopefully better, which is what they're doing now. Okay, and what are sort of the main themes around the need for change? What what is rubbish about it? <laughs> well, one of the one of the mainly rubbish bits is that the everything's obviously on paper. All our horses' passports are paper documents. So the main thing they need to know is sort of where horses are, basically, and they want to know what are the best ways of doing that. And hopefully so one of the proposals is to allow horse owners and keepers to go and update their horse's passport details online or via an app free um, and so we've been told Jan Rogers of the British Horse Council and the Horse Trust said that the current rules which were brought in after the horse meat scandal were based on food chain safety but the priorities now are horse welfare and traceability and also preventing disease and if we don't know where the horses are we can't do that. Okay. And there is a survey that people can fill in to take part in this consultation. Where can people find it? Yeah, so just to, to, to add that the main government consultation is very weighty and very long and very technical. And so the British Horse Council has put out a, a simpler and more accessible survey. And they're saying if people hopefully can do this, they will then feed back uh, the responses into the main system. And, and just to add that this is... You, you don't get many chances to improve and, and change laws. And this is sort of, a, if we don't get this right as an industry, there won't be a, a chance for another time. So please, everyone do have a say. And you can do that by going to britishhorsecouncil.org. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Eleanor. Becky, what have you been looking at this week? I have been looking at coach insurance, um, specifically whether a coach has public liability insurance. Now, this provides cover against a coach in the event of a claim where their actions have caused injury to a third party or damage to their property. And what sort of questions should we as riders be asking of coaches? What, what, should, what should we be aware of? Well, I spoke with Hannah Bradley of the equine law firm who said, while it is not a legal requirement for a coach to have insurance, many choose to do so. And she recommends riders ask their coach if they have insurance. And checking this policy is with a reputable insurer and that the sum is sufficient. She said many professionals might have a cap on the insurance of, say, £1 million. And while she, Hannah pointed out this is, sounds like a lot of money, but if a rider suffers a life-changing injury and requires long-term care, that sum might not actually be sufficient. And just lastly, it's also important to check the coach is operating within the terms of their policy. If the coach is insured to only teach certain types of riding and they breach that, the insurance would not be valid. Mm, thanks, Becky. And Becky's story in the magazine goes into a lot more detail on this and on things around what happens when coaches hire venues or you hire a venue to be taught by a coach. And it's all quite complicated, but interesting and important stuff. So do catch up with more on that in the magazine. Lucy, you were listening into the International Forum for the Aftercare of Racehorses last week. Who did you hear from? What were the main themes? Yes, it was. It was really interesting, actually. There was a really strong global panel. So again, international is, is, the, is the clue there. But it, we talk a lot about re retraining racehorses here in the UK. And it was really interesting to hear a bit more about that worldwide. So on the panel, there were some leading vets. There was a traceability specialist. We also had Anna-Marie Phelps, who's chairman of British Horse Racing Authority, and Di Obisnot, who is retraining of racehorses chief executive, as well as Jock Hutchinson of Horseback UK, which is a Scottish-based charity uh, which uses horsemanship to... Um, help with recovery regaining self-esteem and they do a huge amount of work um, particularly with sort of former servicemen and women so moving on to your, the second part of your question which was about what were the main themes horse welfare and social license were kind of the two constant underpinning themes and I mean, those are hugely broad subjects, really. Social license in particular, it's, it's quite, they're quite ab abstract. So while we know those things are important, it doesn't mean much without the hows and the whats of how to address those. So what I found interesting was the discussion 
kind of narrowed down to focus on um, on communication, education and creating opportunities for horses leaving racing, uh, what's working and what needs to change. So quite clear things there, um, as well as some really good examples of how thoroughbreds qualities, their intelligence and their sensitivity is so suited to other roles after racing. And I go into quite a lot more detail about that in, in the news story in this week's magazine. Mm, thank you, Lucy. And I thought there were some really interesting points being made about the language we use around X racehorses and perception. Can you elaborate a little on that part for us? Yes, definitely. I find this really interesting. Well, I think probably because we deal with words all day, every day, and and with writing, we often have you know quite a lot of back and forth about what are you trying to say here? What do you mean there? Is that the right word here? And the same when you're reading things. And so to hear people talking about it in a, in this kind of context, I find really fascinating. Um, there was some discussion about whether certain language such as rescued, which isn't something I don't think we hear so much in the UK. Um, but remember, again, it's a global forum is actually diminishing opportunities for horses in post racing careers, you know, is that and the, the, the forum ended as well with the big question of whether retired is the right word to be using. And perhaps it's time to actually want of a better phrase retire the term retired which there was overwhelming support for really you're talking about a horse for example who has perhaps finished his racing career as a five-year-old and is retired really the right world for a horse who has his whole life ahead of him so yeah some really interesting points in there mm, definitely thank you lucy and thank you to becky and eleanor for joining us today too Now we're going over to Trisha Nassau-Williams. Trisha is a qualified saddler, saddle fitter, bit and bridle fitter and liveryman at the Worshipful Company of Lorreners. She's lectured in Lorrenery, that is, bits and bridling, to saddlery students at Capel Manor College for many years. Having previously run her own retail saddlery shop specialising in Lorrenery and saddle fitting, she now works as the field officer and Lorrenery consultant for the British Equestrian Trade Association. Over to you, Trisha. On this episode, we're going to look at measuring for horse bits. It uh, never ceases to amaze me how people seem to get in a complete muddle um, about measuring for their horse's bit. It was only last weekend I was talking to someone and she was gaily telling me that she desperately needed to find a six and a half to six and three quarter inch bit. Wondering if she was riding a Clydesdale, perhaps, uh, it transpired that she was in fact doing the common error of measuring the bit from the very outside to the very outside, which is perhaps an, an easy and understandable mistake to make if you're new to the subject. Uh, so just to give some clarity and help with measuring, because it's uh, going to help you a lot if you are selecting a bit, whether you be ordering one in or going face-to-face to to get one, or just trying to assess what you've actually got in the first place. So with a bit, firstly lay it flat on the table, flat on a smooth surface, and with a firm, rather than a material measure, I would suggest you use a firm ruler, just place it over the top of that ruler, and to measuring the length of the bit, in other words, the side-to-side measurement that's in the horse's mouth, just measure from the inside of the bit to the inside of the bit, taking it across, and you could do that in either inches or centimetres, but that's the dimension that you're looking for. If I was measuring for a loose ring bit, then I would just allow a little bit more generosity of space. I personally would measure it just from the inside of the outer edge section of the ring across to the other side, just to allow for that little bit of space. But that will give you the length of your bit. If you're wanting to measure for the width or the thickness of the mouthpiece, and nowadays that's something that we have a much wider range of mouth thicknesses available to us, then you're going to be looking to measure it at centimetres. So again, with a bit laid flat on the table, the easiest way, if you can get your hands on a pair, is to use a digital caliper gauge with a liquid crystal display. Um, That would literally just place that in next to the side of the mouthpiece, edge of the mouthpiece, and measure in millimetres that width. If you don't have a a caliper to measure it from, then you can just turn the solid ruler sideways on, place the bit on top, and then just measure that from above that diameter. 
some companies will actually have different gauges that will be have shaped sections so you can offer up into the bit and that will give an indicator whether it's uh, you know, 12 millimeter, which is very fine, 14 millimeter, which is fine, 16 millimeters, which is perhaps the most common measurement, uh, 80 millimeters, which is getting fatter again, and then 21, which is really very generous. So it's more something that you would have um, on perhaps a, a mullen mouth or, or a rubber mouth bit, or even 23, which is really, really thick mouthpiece. Um, but that will give you an idea how to measure for that thickness. If the bit's tapered, still be measuring the widest bit that's right up to the side or the cheek, if you like, of, of the bit itself. If you're wanting to measure the length of the cheek piece, lay the bit flat on the table and measure from the top straight the way down through to the bottom. If you're measuring for the length of a curved bit, then do the same measurement from the top straight down, but don't include any allowance for the little loose ring to which the lower reins attach just down the length of the of the shank. For a curved chain length, that's really very simple. You're just simply measuring from one length to the other and they will come perhaps in small, medium, large range of size. And for the ring size, that again is uh, a common area that gets confused, is to measure across the diameter. So you're measuring from the inside of the ring straight the way across to the other to the inside the other side across the diameter so of, say for example 45 millimeters might be very small a 55 might be 50 55 might be a sort of bradoon type size and then a larger sizes will be 60 65 70 millimeters would be quite a, a normal loose ring snaffle size and those are your main diameters to measure if you're wanted to ever know how to measure for the thickness of your bridle's buckle then you're measuring where the leather turns over the buckle so if you take your cheek piece for example and you measure from the inside of the buckle to the inside of the buckle where the leather turns over that's the diameter that you're looking for and bridles I think perhaps commonly a sort of five inch if not wider would be three quarters or half inches is really very fine. One of the easiest ways could be if you've got a bit already, just look and assess it in his mouth um, and then just simply measure that in the way I've already described. To know if it's fitting correctly, you firstly need to get the correct height in the horse's mouth. So just sitting neatly into his, the corners of his mouth and perhaps parallel to the second two grooves on the inside of the roof of his mouth. Um, and then from the width of it, you, when, once you've got the height correct, so you must get the height correct first because his his jaw is a sort of v-shape if you like so where it's positioned in the mouth will vary in the width so get it the correct height for the bit and type that you've got and then stand in front of him and with a little bit of rain contact just look to see the amount of clearance you've got as a, a very general guide look to see you've got about a, a front index fingers width either side of clearance with a bit of rain contact taken up so the main thing is to understand what you're looking for and why you're looking for it, for its functionality rather than it's this distance or it's that distance. So if a bit is too narrow, it will be pushing into your horse's mouth both sides, squeezing in, which uh, can cause him discomfort and trauma because it'd be pushing the lips of, of his mouth or his cheek even into the side of his face and his teeth. Obviously not going to be very comfortable. If a bit is too wide, it will move, can move adversely from side to side, which again can cause bruising, contusing as it moves across his mouth. And it can also cause trauma in the mouth because the bit uh, is not going to be sitting in the correct position and contact that is designed to be inside of his mouth. And I think perhaps fitting bits too big is the most common fault that I see. People think of oh, it's too big, it'd be kinder because it's got more room and nothing could be further from the truth. It's got to fit true to size to be right for your horse. And sometimes um, you have a frustrating situation where you recommend a bit for somebody, they end up having that bit, but in actual fact, you see them using it much too big. And that's because someone's lent them one or given them one. It's got a bit's got to be the right size, not only the right design type for your horse uh, and fitted correctly to be functioning well. So how do you measure yours? If you haven't got a bit that fits well to to take a gauge from, you can get bit measure gauges. Um, sometimes some of the manufacturers supply these that you can just use as a little cardboard cutout or plastic cutout for standing in front of your horse to actually place each side of his mouth that then that gauge reads the width. Um, or you can have uh, actual bit measures, which are basically a straight bar 
section, either be metal or nylon, with a little gauge on the side and a nylon slip head that goes over the top of the horse's head. So you can actually place it in the horse's mouth, move the little adjuster along and actually read off the dimensions. That works, gives you a guideline, but it, it depends. Mouthpieces can vary in how they fit in the horse's mouth. So again, it's understanding what you're looking for and why you're looking for it. It's no good saying my horse is a five and a half inch, therefore that's the bit he's having. In some bits, which are much have a much greater curve to the mouth, they may fit differently. Different mouthpieces may slightly fit differently. So it's being open-minded enough just to simply acknowledge what's in front of you with your horse to make sure that you actually get the right fit, regardless of what actual sizing might be on it. So I hope that you found that useful and interesting. If you wanted to know a bit more about bits and bitting, Beta have got a Beta Lorenry course. It's a one-day course that covers many of the topics to do with bitting, whether it's its selection, equine mouth confirmation, different types of bit and mouthpiece, and all the considerations to help you with bitting your horse. Do go to beta-uk.org to find out more. Thank you, Tricia. Next week, Trisha will be back to chat about different bridle designs. Our interview will be with one of the show jumpers who is at the recent World Cup finals looking back on that competition. And we'll have the week's news as normal, including a review of the Winter Dressage Championships. Do join us then. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.